Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Scott Yanor. He is a professor of political science at Boise State University, where he teaches political philosophy, and he is a Washington fellow at the Claremont Institute's new Center for the American Way of Life. He is the author of Family Politics, The Idea of Marriage in Modern Political Thought, and most recently, The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies, which he is here to discuss with us today. Scott Yanor, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thanks, Nino. I appreciate the chance to talk to you about this. Um, Now, the book is absolutely packed the seams with insight, as we were discussing before we got started here. And we could pick uh, any one chapter and record an entire episode on it. And I mean that, Uh, but we won't. Uh, We'll try to hit some of the highlights here. And the title, as I mentioned, is The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. Family life or a proper understanding of family life has been lost. And this book is a wonderful attempt to show us how we might recover it. Now, of course, we are the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. So I'd like to begin with the family as an institution in American life. You write that Quote, John Adams understated the importance of families when he suggested that the foundation of national morality must be laid in private families. The very existence of a political community rests on the sexual behavior and procreative purposes of especially married couples. So, Scott, let me start by asking you, why is the family so important? And is the family of any particular significance in a democratic republic like our own? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, today we can take so few things for granted, and uh, I think we used to be able to take in the past for granted the idea that uh, men and women would marry and have children, and uh, we're seeing all over the Western world that we can't count on that, given both uh, the careerism and the contraception that makes careerism possible. Birth rates are declining nearly everywhere in Western Europe. Uh, They're below replacement, I think, in every country in in Europe and in Asia. So we can't even count on the future existing in any kind of way that it has. And uh, so, and and married couples are the ones who still generally, in an overwhelming number of cases, are the ones who have children. So the very existence of the future depends on, the, on, on what men and women do and uh, whether they marry and have children. And Adams kind of takes that for granted uh, in, his, in his little quote that uh, many family advocates uh, point to. Yeah. He assumes that the central role of the family in the democratic republic is to, is to in, in, inculcate character into the children that they have to teach them self-control to make them open to enlightenment, uh, to give them an idea of how they would serve a public and serve themselves, uh, give them habits of industriousness and such. And so he assumes that families are going to be central to that. And I think that's true. 
And that is something that family advocates continue to talk about and emphasize, and many social scientists have proved in one way or another. Yeah. But I just I tried to show that that even assumes too much. And that's an old way of thinking that anyone who wants to defend the modern, uh, the family in modern circumstances has to get down to a deeper level and talk about people actually having children right. instead of just how they would raise them. And of course, the family has been undermined by this sexual revolution. And if you mention the phrase sexual revolution to someone, they'll say, oh, sure, the 1960s, the pill. But that's in the past. Some of the effects may linger, but the revolution itself is come and gone. And yet you begin your book, quote, a sexual revolution is taking place among us. All see it, but all do not judge it in the same way. Tell us about this revolution. What is it a revolt against? And what is this revolution rolling towards? You call it a rolling revolution. Yeah, I mean, that, the, the phrasing there is borrowed from Tocqueville's Democracy in America, who is talking about uh, a, a democratic revolution is taking place among us. And mm -hmm. I try to use the same angle with the, with the sexual revolution. Well, the, the way I try to define sexual revolution is that it has three pillars, um, but two of, the, two of them are the main ones. Uh, feminism and sexual liberation theory are the main ideo ideologies of the sexual revolution. And they aren't, um, they aren't policies or technological advances, but rather ideas that are working themselves out in our lives. So mm -hmm. feminism is the idea that, uh, that it's best for both men and women to be independent. Uh, not only of one another, uh, but e independent economically and emotionally, um, that they should be uh, similar in character, uh, and that there should be no, uh, no limits on you know, sexual expression. So a great feminist thinker of the early 70s, Kate Millett, uh, put it best. She said there are three aspects of the feminist revolution. Uh, the end of patriarchal socialization, she called it the achievement of emotional and economic independence for women and children too, because without children being independent, women would feel that they might have a duty to children. Mm. And then third, the ending of sexual taboos. And while the pill and things that happened in the 60s help support the independence of women, help make women act more like men sexually and therefore um, uh, contribute to undermining patriarchal socialization. And the pill also helps people be looser sexually, um, therefore ending some sexual taboos like the idea that sex belongs in marriage. Right. It's only one role of the revolution and more aspects of it need to bring it closer toward completion. So, um, so the, the idea is that in this case, feminism constitutes what I call a rolling revolution. It requires a continual revolutionizing or a, a continual erasing of, we'll call it traditional morality, or the old ideas that men and women are different, that marriage is a communal institution, and that sexual self-restraint is something that contributes to monogamous marriage and indi individual virtue. And, uh, so, and, and one could say the same thing about sexual liberation theory. Sexual liberation theory, I say, is, seeks to get human beings beyond repression. Yeah. So the, 
the in the sixties, um, there was an expression of getting people beyond rep repression, and that was just to make it uh, possible for um, you know sex to be outside of marriage and to kind of normalize uh, premarital sex. And they've been successful in that. And but also contributing to the end of sexual taboos or things like the establishment of gay rights. Mm -hmm. And um, and the, the decline of marriage rates and the acceptance of contraception as a norm and these this continues to roll. So the goals of getting us beyond gender, as the case of, in the case of feminism, getting us beyond repression in the case of sexual liberation theory, are endless goals that require a constant revolutionizing and a constant advancing in order for them to come closer to what to what they're seeking to achieve. Yeah, uh, quoting you here, the rolling revolution- That's always tough, no, all right, go ahead. <laughs> um, uh, qu quoting you here, the rolling revolution rejects our condition as embodied and rational beings capable and interested in attachment to community of finding meaning and sacrificial love for one another and as political animals. If the rolling revolution is not a rejection of the human condition, it is an attempt to create a new human being, end quote. So what sort of human being does the rolling revolution seek to create? Well, an independent one. I mean, I think that's the crucial thing, um, that for the rolling, for these aspects of the rolling revolution, feminism, sexual liberation theory, no part of our identity uh, can be legitimate unless it proceeds directly from our will. Hmm. Our will cannot be shaped by any incentives or any culture or any education around us. So, the, and, and that's what they ultimately mean by independence. Um, so, you know, feminism, tra going to feminism for a second, feminism traces its origins to this Simone de uh, Second Sex. Um, she is a believer in existentialism. The, the slogan of existentialism is existence precedes essence hmm. and what that means is our our being in the world is what creates the meaning in the world and um and and feminism attaches itself to that particular view and and i mean it's very difficult to achieve the idea that human beings will have nothing meaningful can about human beings exists except what proceeds from their will. None of us will ourselves into existence. Uh, none of us can will immortality. I like to say that none of us can go without sleep. That's such an insult to the idea that we are autonomous beings. I mean, yeah. forget the fact that there are men and women. All of us sleep, darn it. I mean, <laughs> I hate sleeping. Uh, it robs me of a third of my life or, you know, an increasing shorter period of my life because as I get older, I have to sleep less. But, <laughs> but um, you know, so the, these are, there, there are several basic human experiences. The fact that we are uh, coming to the world, men and women, we don't make ourselves, we die, we sleep, we need to eat, that all show that things don't proceed from our wills alone. And uh, what I think traditional thinking uh, did is try to make sense of our freedom and our limits. And what, uh, what the rolling revolution represents is one part of a philosophic movement that tries to either ignore or erase the limits in human life. 
So this rolling revolution creates a human being or seeks to create a human being who is radically free and autonomous. He is bound by no obligations that are not freely chosen by him. Like you said, it cannot be due to culture or education. It has to be freely chosen. So let me ask you this. Is this sort of individual in this sort of highly individualistic society the inevitable conclusion of liberal democracy? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and, uh, but I, I do know that there are respectable views uh, that, that hold that it is the inevitable version or uh, uh, a culmination of, of the original principles of uh, liberalism. And, um, and it's complicated for me because this revolution is taking place in countries that you'd have to say aren't liberal democracies. And uh, we're seeing birth rates uh, decline, using that as an indicator here, we're seeing birth rates decline all over the globe. Hmm. And not just in places that have been experiencing liberal democracy, Italy has as low of a birth rate as Singapore. Hmm. But their traditions and commitments to individual rights and liberal democracy are different. So I'm leery of saying that uh, of, of adopting something like the Patrick Deneen pose on yeah. this, that it's traceable to the rotten principles of the American founders, which are inevitably working themselves out. It's too global of a phenomenon to, to, to hang it on just one country and one country's um, set of principles. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a cause for great wonder, I think, to to see the global nature of this, mm -hmm. uh, even in places like uh, Africa, where the birth rates are way above replacement, it's declining rapidly, and so like everyone's on the same tide, and I think we have to look in a way below liberal democracy, in order to kind of understand that tide. Sure. I want to turn to one of the pillars of this rolling revolution, and that is feminism. Uh, you discuss contemporary or second wave feminism. What differentiates this second wave from the first? And why did the second wave feminists think a second wave was necessary? So the first wave of feminism is about securing uh, the individual rights or the natural rights that men had for women. So the right to own property, the right to engage in contract contracts, uh, and culminating in the right to vote. So it was the idea that uh, women would be equal citizens uh, as men. There was some reform of marital institutions um, went along with that, um, but for the most part, it was the extension of citizenship rights to women. The second wave feminists were disappointed at the decisions that women were making with their rights. Mm -hmm. They had the right to property, they had the right to work, they had the right to vote, but they weren't voting the right way, or they weren't um, gaining property or becoming CEOs or bohemian poets. They were becoming mothers and wives, um, and that uh, gave rise to second wave feminism, which holds that there needs to be a cultural revolution that change the way women make choices with their rights. And they, they trace the continual, uh, the continued existence of, we'll say conservative decisions among women to patriarchal socialization. Mm. And 
So it was necessary for second wave feminists to make one of their planks the tearing down of patriarchal socialization, that is giving men and women different kinds of education. That was done in order for women to be encouraged and maybe even forced to make different choices than they had in the past. And uh, one can see this in all of the early writings of the uh, second wave feminists, Beauvoir and um, Betty Friedan, Kate Millett, Shuley Firestone, all heap a kind of scorn on the first wave of feminism, saying, you know, why did they have such low ambitions? And why did they accept the, uh, the differences between men and women? And, um, and while I think there is kind of a, a, a radical tinge in some of the first wave of feminism, or first wave feminists, uh, for the most part, they accepted that there would be continued differences and they weren't traceable to patriarchy. And uh, the second wave feminists, that's what they reject in the name of creating an independent woman. Mm. You mentioned feminists looking at women and, and saying that they're, they're not uh, behaving the way they ought to. They're not voting the way they should. Uh, and it brought to mind in an early episode, we were joined by Alexandra DeSanctis, a friend of mine and a wonderful young journalist at National Review. And we talked a little about her experience as a young conservative woman and how the greatest ire from the ideological left seems to be reserved for conservative women. And just, uh, you know, just recently, we saw the confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. You would think that, or at least I would think, this would be a cause of tremendous celebration on the left and from feminists. Here's a woman of tremendous talent, enormous professional success, and a lovely family and dutiful mother too. And yet the left was furious. Why? Yeah, um, yeah I, one of the things I talk about in the book um, is that, that, you know, we have different opinions in society on various issues. Some people are pro-gay rights. Some people are anti-gay rights. Can those kinds of people get along? <laughs> and um, and I, I think the most difficult group or difficult factions in society uh, to reconcile are women who are committed first to their family and then women who are committed first to their career. Mm. And I don't think, and this is drawing on experience, I did try to find a lot of social science on this, but didn't find that the question gets asked very often, if at all, but whether friendships across this divide happen very often. In my experience, they don't happen very often. Mm. And it's a very difficult um, uh, chasm to overcome because it's a question of public honor what will be honored most among the population for, uh, in half of our population or for half of our population. It's very difficult to find any kind of common ground between this. And, uh, and, and it seems to me that, um, that the career-oriented education has won. And the early feminists recognized that women who committed themselves first to family were like, betrayers of a class mm. were traitors and they needed to be dishonored and Beauvoir spends a lot of time dishonoring them and showing them uh, um, you know talking about what housework is and how it's uh, beneath the dignity of a rational being um, and never connecting it to a home and the beauty that could come from a home yeah and uh, and so I think the early feminists recognized that it was necessary as a matter of public honor 
to stigmatize those who would elevate motherhood, wifehood above careerism. Hmm. And, uh, and because it's, a, it's an impossible chasm or impossible faction to reconcile. And, um, and you know, I think the, the feminists were right about that. It is a very difficult chasm to bridge. And, uh, and I think the challenge for conservatives uh, and those who want to defend the family is to find a way of talking and thinking about the woman question hmm. that honors not just um, the independent woman, but rather it, that honors men and women who build communities and, uh, uh, together in a family and, uh, and then policies that match that and help support it. But I think yeah. it's a matter of honor, not a matter of incentives. Yeah. Um, you have an excellent passage in the book talking about the sort of speech a statesman who honors these things, the sort of speech he would give. And I'd like to turn to that in a little. But before we move on from, from feminism, uh, feminists and the advocates of transgenderism seem to be heading for a collision. Uh, we can find numerous examples now of transgender athletes competing in women's sports. These are men who identify as women and crushing the competition because of these natural differences between the sex that you point out. Uh, was this an inevitable tension that was going to need to be worked out? And how do you see this playing out? Yeah, um, so that's interesting. And that's one of the things, you know, it's hard to write a book uh, because you keep thinking about the topics and then you say, oh man, if I would have, I think I, my, my analysis could have been improved in this way. <laughs> and I think this issue is one of the things that I could have improved on. So let me give a critique of Yenner. Um, <laughs> one of the things I do in the, in, the, uh, in the feminism chapter is I say that feminism uh, seeks to separate sex from gender. Now, right. what that means is it seeks to separate the body from society's way of imagining what the body means for our lives. And uh, feminism seeks to leave sex behind and uh, to emphasize, um, as a cultural matter, the independence that we have from our bodies. And, uh, and, and you know, that's the way I characterize feminism. And when you look at the divorce between sex and gender, you can see transgenderism growing out of feminism. Because trans, the idea of transgender is our gender and our body are separate matters. Yeah just as it was for feminism. And so there's an alliance between feminists and transgender activists. And you see that, I think, in a lot of practical politics. However, I think, and this is what I think I could, I, I think it's, it's in the book, but it could be clearer in the book, is that this divorce between sex and gender for feminists is supposed to create a new kind of woman, the independent woman. Hmm. And athletics also contributes to uh, creating a different kind of character that the feminists wanted to cultivate in young girls and women. And so the goal served by sex, this divorce between sex and gender, is the creation of an independent woman. And transgenderism can undermine the creation of that independent woman. Hmm. So I think there's, an, there's grounds for an alliance between transgenderism and feminists. And we see that to some extent in practical politics, where on the level of the national government, you're going to have uh, those who are feminists supporting transgender rights and the Equality Act and such. 
Mm. But in other expressions of it, when we talk about what you want to get, feminists want an independent woman who is cultivated in part through the participation in sports. There will be other cultural um, supports for that too. But uh, that's where they run up against transgender activists. Yeah. So that's the way I kind of think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as it is now. I was in a debate on this uh, last week, and, uh, and that was a real experience. <laughs> um, I think this will be my last question on, on feminism, uh, but you have an excellent article up uh, on the American mind about what you call the false science of feminism. Uh, and, and if I could kind of crudely summarize it, it's that despite the astonishing wealth and comfort we experience, today, and despite the obvious success of the, of the feminist movement in accomplishing its goals, uh, the levels of happiness and satisfaction among women in some of the wealthiest and most developed countries is declining. Suicide, depression, all rising. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, all social phenomena are complex. And uh, in, in this case, it's a complex thing, too. And, uh, and it's, I think, probably wrong to say that it's because of feminism and the alienation that women have from their bodies that they are unhappy and anxious and depressed and on more uh, antidepressants than ever before, and they're less happy than the generation from before feminism. And so I don't think it's only uh, created by that. I think we're better at diagnosing uh, mental disorders, um, and there, are, there is an inevitable anxiety in human life that, uh, that I think also contributes to this. But uh, I mean, what I really want to say is that uh, if it were the other direction, if women were happier, less anxious, uh, less depressed, fewer suicides, feminists would take credit. And but mm-hmm. the fact that the needle has gone in the other direction on these matters really means that we should... Um, entertain the possibility, I'm totally for the idea that uh, part of the uh, decline in these measures of well-being is uh, to be laid at the feet of feminism. And I think it happens in different ways. I think there are upper class anxieties and then there are lower class anxieties. Um, but, but, uh, But I think it's a global phenomenon uh, that's happening, um, you know, all over the Western world, but especially in America. Yeah. So you talked about two of the three pillars, feminism and the sexual liberation movement, maybe the two sturdiest of these pillars. This is supposedly an age of sexual liberation, right? If it feels good, do it. No limits. And yet young people are having less sex. Why is that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, And uh, I don't know if it's, I I don't know what the answer is. And uh, I don't know if it's that there's fear involved in it. If uh, many more women are more career-minded and worry that uh, sexual relationships might get in the way of it, it might be that there are alternatives to sex for men that are easier and safer, and uh, which is the the consumption of pornography and and accompanying things that go along with that that uh, lead to sexual release. And, um, and, that's an unusual thing for me. I usually don't use a, a, a talk around like <laughs> it's a family show. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and um, so, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen that and I've, I find it to be an interesting thing. And I believe that it means that some of the commitments we have to feminism 
are overriding the commitments we have to sexual liberation. And uh, it's not leading to more marriage. It's not leading to more or anything like that. It's not like people are saving themselves for it. Right. It means, I think, that other, other, other alternatives and, uh, are, are uh, used by men and the careerism of young women has led them away from men. Mm-hmm. I think it makes perfect sense when you say that one of these contributing factors to young people having less sex is the widespread consumption of pornography. I'm curious, what other effects do you think this widespread consumption of pornography has, both on men individually, but then on society more generally? Yeah, um, I also wrote an article on that for, uh, for American Mind um, that was a little bit before the false science of feminism. It, it seems to me that, um, that, you know, the conservatives gotten this stuff wrong too. When you, when you look at the history of what uh, the cr- criticisms of deregulating pornography uh, have been, it would be that it would lead to lots of crime and lots of juvenile delinquency and, and uh, lots of rape. And, um, and, but really what's happened is that it's led to co- uh, more of a mass indifference about human relationships among men. Um, I mean, in fact, the greatest drops in the number of rapes in the United States over the last uh, 20 years has coincided with the expansion and consumption of more internet pornography. Hmm. It's not what everyone thought, what J. Edgar Hoover thought in the 50s uh, that has happened, but rather a kind of indifference to human relationships uh, that has resulted from it. And I think that the, um, the, the broader uh, implications of that is that one of the sources for human ingenuity, power, interest, uh, ambition um, is just the physical erotic nature of human beings. It make, they feel like they lack something and they want to accomplish it. And, um, and what I think pornography has been one of the factors in, um, in say, the decline of American ambition and nerve. And hmm. uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me that uh, sapping the erotic nature of men would have some sort of real public implications uh, for, I would say, just broader ambition. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. The sexual and it might be true. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I have a suspicion it might be. But talking about the the sexual liberation movement more generally, does it have any limiting principle other than consent? And if it doesn't, you'd say this should worry us because you write consent is not enough. Yeah. Um... Well, the goal of the sexual liberation movement is to get human beings beyond repression, which means that there can be no limits on the expression of our sexuality. And one of the incoherences in the sexual liberation movement is that they assume that sex itself is a rather tame activity. That is, it doesn't involve any possibility for hostility, any possibility for coercion, that according to them, coercion and hostility and the desire to dominate are the result of the restraints we have put on sexual desire. Mm. So they always assume that sex and sexual desire is more tame than I think anyone in the history of the world has ever thought about sexual desire. (laughs) 
and um, and which means that they think that sex kind of emerges from our souls as something that respects the consent of other people. And and the thing that I would um, you know, push push against in that way is that consent is an accomplishment. First of all, hmm. it's an accomplishment to get people to respect the bodily integrity of others, and uh, and that it needs to be carefully taught. And the question is, how is it carefully taught? Is it carefully taught by simply talking about the importance of consent? Or is it carefully taught by teaching about the importance of sex or the importance of the activity that you're, that you're engaging in? So consent is not enough because consent itself is a, is a um, ambiguous concept. It's not clear that it's a one-time thing or a continual thing. Right. It's not clear that it can be given with education or it requires that our wills be totally unformed by education. So we're always talking about a particular kind of consent. And we also need to, I think, put forward the idea that what the consent serves is crucial for, uh, for shaping the way we say yes or no to things. Sure. And uh, so consent, you know, a lot of things aren't enough. Nature is not enough. Consent is not enough. Uh, culture is not enough. Um, but consent is surely not enough. Sure. You identify a new problem with no name. What is that problem? Yeah. Um, so I, I borrow that from Betty Friedan. I'm trying to steal it. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see if, uh, if uh, the literary theft is recognized. Um, the new problem with no name is the decline of marital character. That is, people who are prepared for the trials that go along with, uh, with living a life in close quarters with another human being, with sharing common goods and uh, trying to make it endure. Yeah. And, um, and I think there are two ways, I think from the bottom and from the top, um, the, the marital character has been threatened. And this is kind of the problem of the two Americas that Charles Murray talks about in Coming Apart and, and countless other books really dating back to the early 1960s talk about this problem. That is, some people are fatalistic and not responsible or don't project their life into the future. This is a lower class problem. It exists among both whites and blacks in America where marital, marriage rates are low and responsibility is low, but drug use is high and uh, an excessive manliness is, uh, it makes it difficult to enter into marriage and suspicion among women of men justified in, to some extent. Um, you know, defines the way that they're raised. So that, that's what, what, what you could call like a, like below, but these people can't rise to the level of marriage. And then there's a hyper-civilized problem where people are aspiring to self-sufficiency or independence. Um, this is the idea of the capstone marriage, yeah. where marriage isn't something that, that you struggle and learn with another person through life, but rather it's an accomplishment that you achieve after you've done all the important things. Yeah. And, um, and that's what I would kind of like the hyper-civilized uh, threat to marital character. And, you know, some of them you see, I would say the first problem is uh, characteristic of rural America, and I try to have a long treatment of that in the book. The second problem is kind of more difficult to identify and really even more difficult to talk about. 
because it requires that that we take on the idea of, uh, of a very honored idea of the career-oriented woman, a characteristic of the middle and upper middle class. And, uh, but that also is a threat to, or a kind of undermining of marital character. Yeah. Uh, now I warned you and I warned our listeners that, that we would not even be able to put a dent in this book because it is that insightful. Uh, but you know, as we start to draw to a close here, I'd like to, to maybe turn to some potential solutions if there are any to be had. But I'd like to start here. You cite Alexis de Tocqueville, who said, quote, there is a society only when men consider a great number of objects under the same aspect, when on a great number of subjects they have the same opinions, when, finally, the same facts give rise in them to the same impressions and the same thoughts. So that's a, a Tocqueville there is assuming many men agreeing on many things. I'm assuming he's also expecting that many men will agree on some very important fundamental things. We're not there anymore. To put an even sharper point on this, can a culture that doesn't even agree on how many genders there are keep going for very long? Yeah, no. Um, I mean, I think uh, the, the, the challenge, therefore, for, um, for those who want to maintain a civilization is to find ways, uh, aspirations, that uh, can be put forward as matters of public honor and uh, that can help move the needle on these things. So I try to think through what those aspirations might be in the book. And, um, and so th this is a statesman-like, if I can say it, uh, uh, but uh, I don't mean to be so grand about it. I'm no statesman. Um, but uh, so how can we overcome the woman problem? Uh, that is the divide between women who put marriage at the center of their lives and those who put careers at the, at yeah. the center of their lives. Because I think about three quarters of women, according to the studies that I've looked at, really would rather value family over their careers, but don't want to give it up, many of them. And then about 25% want to value careers over family. Uh, so how can, we, how can we overcome this divide? And I suggest that, uh, that conservatives put forward a, uh, a, an idea for women of part-time work. Yeah. Try to create and support and honor part-time work. Um, as which which isn't to say we're gonna prevent people from working full-time, but rather that we're gonna encourage and honor the idea that women can try to integrate work into a, a life where they're building communities, which presumably, I mean, I think, will be attractive to a lot of them. And uh, and therefore create a 75-25 solution to the problem of what women want. Hmm. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to imagine the future of a country where we disagree about fundamental principles of justice, where some people look at a mother of five children and say, you're a breeder who's undermining the environment, or you're oppressed, and I feel so sorry for you. And a lot of other people look at her and say, and what can I do to help? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, th those are just really fundamental differences that uh, very few societies have experienced and, uh, and none that I know of have survived it. Mm. 
you use the metaphor, I think I'm recalling this correctly, of a snowball. This is the rolling revolution. It's a snowball coming down a hill and it's picking up speed. Mm-hmm. I think you would, you would say that this snowball is coming down this hill pretty quickly. Why have conservatives been so unsuccessful in fighting this? Why has, it, why has the snowball managed to pick up so much speed? Yeah, um, well... I mean, I think there's two answers to that. Uh, one is that, um, is that, to some extent, the conservatives have reconciled themselves to the pillars of the sexual revolution hmm. and have a bad conscience about opposing feminism and sexual liberation. Um, they accommodate themselves to the previous changes um, as it seems necessary to accommodate ourselves to the previous changes um, and, uh, and therefore are always fighting on a narrower and narrower terrain where the, the sexual revolutionaries occupy the moral high ground. And then we try to find a spot within that narrow range to be a little more pro-family. So we accept the principles of feminism, we accept the principles of sexual liberation theory, and then we go after the earned income tax credit reform or child tax credit. Now, not that those are bad things, and I honor the people who've done those things, but it, it's not the heart of the matter. Yeah. And uh, so there's a sense in which the whole movement has been accommodating of the, the, the ideologies that are threatening the thing they're trying to save. And then, so I, you know, and that's one thing that I'm, I'm, I see as part of my job to reverse or to at least bring attention to that so that we rec- can recognize the, the snowballs we're up against. Yeah. And then the, uh, the but the second thing is a little more tragic, uh, which is that, I mean, it seems to be as modernity happens, it's more and more difficult to defend the given. You know, modernity is about transforming the world. Our commitment to modern science is about transforming the world. And uh, it's a broad civilizational commitment. And part of transforming the world is transforming the natural things that seem given about children and men and women being different, the need to sleep and the fact that we're going to die. Those are the four big ones, I think. And um, so you can see why I like Russian novels, right? (laughs) Um, Because they they put that at the heart of uh, the human condition, whereas our not, you know, we just don't do that anymore. Yeah, the Russians have a knack for that. Um, So in, in closing, I thought we'd spend some time with the closing of your book, which is a lot of fun and and very insightful. And you write, quote, advocates of the rolling revolution reduce their thoughts to slogans, which then inform all of their arguments. And quote, these slogans are effective and dangerous because as you write, quote, they give the appearance of wisdom and common sense to the rolling revolution, though they conceal as well as reveal, end quote. So you respond with some of your own slogans. I thought we'd go through some of them. I'll read you the slogan of the rolling revolution, and I'm sure many, if not all of our listeners will recognize them, and then I'll have you respond with your slogan uh, and maybe a brief description of it. So we'll start here. The rolling revolution says, feminism is the radical notion that women are human beings. Yeah, I try to take everything from a bumper sticker. That's one of my <laughs> principles. And uh, 
I remember reading a column a few years ago where uh, the person said, I'm sick of the old cliches. I want new cliches. <laughs> and, um, and so I'm trying to give some new cliches. Yeah, so women is the, uh, feminism is a radical notion that women are human beings. That's the feminist bumper sticker. And I agree. But the debate is over what it, it, it means to be human. And uh, what they mean by human beings is that human beings are uh, undefinable. Um, by anything outside, and they can will their own identity. And so my, my responding bumper sticker would be, women are human beings, limits and all. I mean, it needs some work. <laughs> but, you know, I was operating on a deadline. And uh, because and I'm sure many of us have run up to this, run up against this in public debates, where uh, one of our uh, intellectual opponents will say something like, well, you're denying my basic humanity. Right. And it's like, well, no, I mean, actually we can talk about what you think it means to be human, what I think it means to be human. And, uh, and that's where it needs to, the, the response needs to be on that level. So yeah. that's my response to that particular feminist bumper sticker. Next bumper sticker. And this is one I know all listeners will be well familiar with. Believe all women. Yes, yeah, so I respond with uh, Solzhenitsyn. A line between good and evil runs through the heart of all people, men and women. So we need to have laws that recognize that vices, um, manipulation, sensuality, both men and women have these problems. Yeah. And, uh, and when it comes to, this is specifically talking, of course, about uh, the Kavanaugh hearings and uh, the corresponding... Um, a approach to rape that's called affirmative consent yeah that uh that every law that we pass this to me is one of the the christian and philosophic points that has very practical implications for how we govern and live every law that we pass needs to recognize that no one's perfect and no one's totally evil yeah and, but the no one's perfect is the really important part. Um, and, uh, and, and I think the old processes of due process, um, uh, being able to cross-examine witnesses and uh, is a way of recognizing that the line between good and evil runs through the heart of all people. Yeah. And isn't Solzhenitsyn better than Believe All Women? I mean, I think that one's <laughs> the best of time. Uh, you and I think so, I, you know. Um, you cannot legislate morality. So I can't remember what I said in, in response to that, but it goes something like all laws legislate morality. That's exactly how it goes. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, this, is, this is liberalism, right? Liberalism yeah. aspires to the idea that the state is neutral and, uh, and, uh, and doesn't take a side in moral controversies, so it tries to withdraw from those controversies and allow people to make up their own minds. But the very idea that we withdraw from a moral controversy isn't a way of saying it's not so important that we have to legislate on the topic. No one would ever say, well, you think, it's, you think killing another adult is murder. I think it's not murder. Therefore, we can't have murder laws. Right. We always, we have laws. Those laws legislate morality. And, um, and so we should always be recognizing what morality is being peddled by liberalism and uh and so when they deregulated pornography for instance uh they made a lot of arguments on behalf of it but they legislated morality yeah. they 
made sure that there was less shame attached to the consumption of pornography. Therefore, there's more of it consumed, which means more of it will be produced. That's the conditions for a revolution yeah. that can happen when you have a different delivery system for pornography, like the internet. Without the previous change, you don't get the later change. And, uh, and so those laws were significant in legislating a new kind of morality. Hmm. So from liberalism to libertarianism, and I don't know if this one will fit on a bumper sticker, but I think we've all heard it before. If you aren't for gay marriage, then do not marry a gay person. If you don't like abortion, then do not have one. If you don't like pornography, then don't watch it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's liberalism and libertarianism. Um, and, uh, and so, I mean, I respond to that with a feminist slogan. The personal is political up to a point. Yeah. And, uh, and so once again, I mean, it's a matter of honor and uh, what is being permitted in society. The more of something you get, human beings as imitative animals will accept, want to accept more of that thing. So the personal choices of people, when they add up as a cultural force, change our notions of honor. And that's what it means to be political. Political is the notion of advantageous, good, honorable that a political community has. And uh, so the, the more of a thing, the more honorable of a, uh, the more honor attaches to that thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, so, and I, like, I defend the feminist idea that the personal is political. I think that's true up to a point. And um, the personal is also personal, um, but it's, it's, we're, we're both kinds of creatures. We're private mm -hmm. and public. Yeah. And, um, and liberals tend to think we're more, or pretend, pretend to think we're more private. And feminists, I think, overstate the extent to which everything is public. But both of them contain an element that uh, I think a sound public philosophy would recognize. Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I recommend all listeners go get a copy of The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. Scott Yonora, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Scott Yonora on his new book, The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. It's a really excellent book, and we were only able to scratch the surface there during our conversation. I put a link to the book in the show notes so you can get a copy for yourself as well as a link to Scott's article on the false science of feminism. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. We'll go ahead and bring things to a close there. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes. Mm -hmm.